Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent. Down the line from New York, we're joined by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, and our guest this week from the EBA, the director of economic analysis there, is Mario Quagliariello. This week, we'll be talking about the European Banking Authority and its assessment of mounting risk in the European banking system. A look, too, at Goldman Sachs as it gears up for its first-ever investment day next month. And finally, pay in the UK and why pensions are going down for CEOs. First, though, to that story about the European Banking Authority. This is the pan-European regulator, which has put out an assessment of risk appetite among banks, and it's found a perhaps worrying trend in terms of riskier lending going on. Caroline, first, tell us exactly what's been found, and then we'll go to our EBA guest for their view. So the EBA puts out this transparency exercise every other year, alternating with the stress tests. And it's a survey of 131 banks across the European Union. And there are a couple of very interesting albeit worrying trends that came out of the data this year. So what the EBA said is that the era of banks shrinking their balance sheets has effectively come to an end. So that deleveraging post the financial crisis has finally finished, which could be a positive. But actually what's happening is that that growth is being driven particularly by riskier assets. So there are increased lendings to commercial real estate, loans to small businesses, that kind of thing. And that's potentially storing up problems for the future, particularly as we're entering what the EBA dubbed a bleak economic environment. The other thing that I would flag was just what the EBA had to say around negative interest rates, particularly. We can sort of draw the conclusion that banks are moving into riskier portfolios because we are in a prolonged low interest environment. And indeed, as far as Eurozone countries are concerned, the ECB is uh, levied negative rates. And we've seen banks pass on that to their corporate and retail customers, particularly in Germany. And so the EBA has said this is definitely something that needs to be kept an eye on. I think watchdogs are generally concerned what might happen to these bank deposits in a particularly stressed scenario. Well, that's the perfect segue to bring in Mario Quagliariello, who is Director of Economic Analysis and Statistics at the EBA. Mario, thanks very much for joining us. What concerns you the most about this increase in balance sheets, but also risk appetite across the European banking system? Let me start with some of the positives in our report, because I think in our assessment this year, we are confirming the strong capital position of the European banks and also the steady decline of NPLs, which are both very positive. Non-performing loans being on the decline for the first time in a long while. 
Yeah, they have been declining over the past year, and now they are, let's say, half in terms of volume of what they were just a few quarters ago. So I think this is a big progress. Still, in some countries, they remain high, so this is what needs monitoring. Our concern is on profitability, which remains slow, is not recovering, and it is very much driven by high costs, especially in some in some banks. That's an interesting point. We'll come on to the cost base. As you said, profitability is an issue, partly lower rates, partly excess costs. But then this way that banks are finding to juice their returns a bit is by taking more risk, which is, I suppose, a natural thing for them to do in the current environment. But you're concerned about this risk being excessive. Certainly, it is positive that there is a recovery in lending after many years of deleveraging. This means that banks have restarted the financing the economy, and this is a good sign. As you say, in our report, we are flagging the lending has been growing, especially towards sectors which are riskier, especially small and medium enterprises, commercial real estate, and consumer credit. And especially if you look not only at the last year, but the last four to five years, the increase in lending in these sectors has been very high. I would say to some extent, this is not unexpected given the economic recovery over the past few years, increase in GDP, decline in unemployment and low interest rates. What it is a concern for us is to understand to what extent this search for yield, which is expected, can be then one of the drivers of future risk for banks, especially given the economic outlook, which is not positive. Well, let me bring Stephen Morris in now for his assessment of one bank and that news that they've announced today on Tuesday morning. Well, it was a mixed bag for Unicredit this morning. They disappointed some expectations, but still showed some progress, especially by this $2 billion share buyback they plan to do over the next few years. The significance of that is that if they do get regulatory approval, which they are expected to, it shows that regulators are finally okay with the cleanup of even southern European banks in the Eurozone's balance sheets, which indicates there could be more of these similar buybacks for banks with a bit of excess capital to come. Now, on the flip side, Unicredit joins a chorus of European banks cutting thousands of jobs. They said they're going to take out 8,000 from their 147,000 strong workforce today. They wouldn't be specific on whether they come from the retail side, from the investment banking side, but it looks like this now takes the total for all European bank job cuts just announced this year to 63,000, which is obviously quite a high number considering that they've been progressively cutting headcount since the crisis. So the shares were up about 1%, which takes the 12-month gain to around 6 or 7. But then you have to look at the book value of the bank, which is around 04 of the total value of its net assets. So things clearly still aren't good. And certainly Unicredit, with a valuation this depressed, is not about to participate in any pan-European consolidation until it's got a bit more oomph behind its share price. Let me go back to Mario for a final word. Tell us what you can about your understanding of, obviously, a bank that cuts costs, as many policymakers have been calling on banks to do, but at the same time returns capital to shareholders. Is this an example of the type of thing we're going to see in the months ahead from other institutions? And are regulators happy with that, given the increasing risks you were highlighting earlier? Perhaps let me take this question in a more general way. I would say clearly what we state in our report is that on the one hand, there has been progress in cleaning up a bank's balance sheet, even though 
this is not a process which is completely finalized. We still need to work on it and banks need to make an additional effort for getting rid of the remaining legacy assets. And the other aspect we emphasize in terms of the profitability of the banks and also the low market valuation is the excessive capacity in the EU banking sector. One of the elements we found is that there is still a quite high branch density. And we have realized that in some jurisdictions in which banks manage to go more into the fintech business, working on the IT systems, reducing the branch network, they tend to be more profitable. So definitely this is something that also other banks should consider. And further buybacks from other banks, do you expect that? I would say this is honestly will depend banks by banks. What we have clearly emphasized is that the capital position of the banks is currently strong. We will run a new stress test next year. So I think the outcome of the stress test is normally directions from the supervisors on whether banks are in a position to distribute dividends or proceeding to buy banks. But I think this is very much case by case. I think on the other end, given the possible deterioration of the macroeconomic outlook, it's important for banks not only to hold capital, making prudent uh, provisioning, uh, but also looking at the way in which they originate the loans. Thank you for that. A quick final word from you, Caroline. Yeah, I mean, I think the profitability of European banks is a perennial problem, and that was really highlighted by the EBA report. I think if there's one statistic that really bears that out, then it's that just 28% of publicly traded European banks boast a price-to-book value of more than one. And that compares with 81% of listed banks in the US. The market really doesn't appreciate the low profits of European banks, that's for sure. So we're joined now by Laura Noonan in New York for a look at Goldman Sachs ahead of next month's first ever Investor Day. Laura, Goldman's doing this Investor Day. It's first ever. Why does it feel the need to do that? What should investors expect out of it? So the backdrop to Goldman's first Investor Day since becoming a public company is really the appointment of a new CEO last October. So David Solomon's been in the job now for a year and a bit. When he became chief executive, he did vow that he would bring a new era of transparency to how Goldman communicates with analysts and with the investors and that he would have a more normal big bank way of doing things. So him and his team have already done a lot to overhaul the way they do the quarterly earnings and they give a lot more detail and a lot more breakdown than what they previously did. The investor days are quite a common thing for the other US banks and several of them have them pretty often. There is a lot of expectation around Goldman Sachs' first one, however, because it's also tied into a front-to-back strategy review that David Solomon and his executives have been working on since they took over the bank. So there's also an expectation that this isn't just going to be the routine investor day like what we see from J.P. Morgan Chase every year. This is more seen as a big reveal in terms of what David Solomon wants to do to take Goldman Sachs forward for the next kind of 10 to 15 years. So would you expect it to be a bit of a damp squib then? kind of limited targets and so on? As to whether it'll be a damn squib or not really depends on what you're expecting. So if you want Goldman Sachs to come out and nail its colours to delivering something really tangible, like to saying we are going to have a return on equity of 14% by 2022, then you will definitely be disappointed by the investor day. 
If you want to instead hear more big picture things about how Goldman Sachs sees the future of its brand evolving over the next decade in the case of something like the work they're doing around the consumer bank, then you'll probably get some of that. Also, if you want to have a better feel for how Goldman Sachs currently makes its money, I think you'll also get a much better grasp of that because they are going to be giving the most tangible and the most granular breakout ever of how they currently make their money. So I think investors are looking forward to that. And that is something that I think the analyst community in particular, so people who have very detailed models which they use to try to predict earnings every quarter, they will be happy. People who like the big story will be happy, but people who really want something tangible about what Goldman Sachs is going to deliver in the next few years won't because, as we've reported, Goldman Sachs isn't going to have these firm targets that some other firms have. Instead, they're going to talk about what earnings will look like through the cycle. The reason for doing this, executives tell me, is that Goldman Sachs is in a number of very cyclical businesses. So the core investment banking business is very dependent on where that market is at. So if there aren't many IPOs, if there aren't many M&A deals, it's very hard for Goldman Sachs to meaningfully outperform that. Similarly for the core securities business, if you're in a slow trading period, then you're not going to have a standout securities quarter. So the idea is that what they'll look at is how Goldman Sachs' core businesses will do throughout the cycle rather than kind of making themselves hostage to fortune in a sense by pinning their cloth to a particular target which could prove unachievable if there are market conditions outside of their control. Finally, in concrete terms, what do you think is likely to be the biggest news out of the day? That is a tough one because there's going to be a number of different things. So I think it's going to be disappointing and difficult for us to cover, actually, because there isn't going to be a big bang and Goldman have been very clear on their messaging around that. As it's shaping up so far, we expect to hear more detail about lots of things. There will be lots of little stories, but in terms of the big bang narrative, there isn't really one. We may get something in terms of how granular they are about their plans to create what they're kind of internally calling a mini Blackstone. And that's the idea of putting all of their investment management businesses and asset management and investing and lending under the same umbrella and basically bring in more third party money for those funds. So they may set some big picture goals around that. That might be interesting. What would be the biggest story if they can do it is if they could unveil some kind of scale acquisition. And what Gummer have always said is that they are open to acquisitions. We've seen smaller acquisitions like on the wealth management front. They bought United Capital a few months ago. Were they to unveil a big bang retail acquisition where they to say we are buying a US retail bank? That would obviously be a big deal. But the chance of them doing that, I would say at this point, and I may look very silly in a couple of months time, but I would say there's less than a 30% chance of them coming out and doing that. Thanks, Laura. I'm glad you've got your crystal ball handy. So let's move on to our third and final topic of the day. And Nick, you and David Crow, our banking editor, have been breaking stories over the past week about the pensions generosity in UK banking. CEOs have been slashing their pension entitlements under duress, arguably, from investors. Tell us exactly what's been going on. Yeah, so this is obviously part of a broader discussion on executive pay that's a perennial issue. But you may remember at the start of the year, there was a lot of focus, especially on pensions, which came in light of these new governance guidelines. Executives in the UK often get a cash lump sum in lieu of a pension contribution, which can be worth a third or more of their base salaries. But the new guidelines say that any contribution should be equivalent to what the bulk of the workforce gets, which is actually usually more like 10 to 13% max of their salaries. 
So HSBC slashed their pensions at the start of the year and RBS brought their executives in line when they appointed a new chief earlier in the year. But over the past week, there have been signs that Lloyd's and Barclays are getting ready to follow them. Nothing will technically be confirmed until after the year end and votes at next year's annual meetings. But the banks are discussing their remuneration policies with shareholders at the moment. And the indications we're getting are that it's pretty clear that the big banks have got the message from investors now. So Antonio Horto Osorio at Lloyd's and Jess Staley at Barclays are both set to see their pension contributions fall by over £200,000 each next year. Finally, you had a quirky little story towards the end of last week revealing that as a result of these cuts, then one of the far smaller challenger banks is going to ironically be the most generous in terms of paying its pensions to the CEO there. Yeah, so overall, this is clearly a bit of a victory for shareholders. I mean, we've spoken before about Standard Chartered, who went from complaining about unhelpful and immature investors to slashing their bosses' pay last month. But not everyone has got the message yet. So Virgin Money, who are in the FTSE 250, they're on a different financial calendar to everyone else. And so quirk of timing, they put out their annual report last week, which shows that new executives will be paid in line with the rest of the staff, but the existing ones will keep their allowance of up to 20% of salary which means that David Duffy, as chief of a bank worth £2.5 billion, is set to get a bigger pension payment than Alison Rose, as chief of a bank worth £26 billion at RBS. I suspect he may come under pressure next. We shall see. That's all for this week. My thanks to Nick, Caroline, Stephen and Laura. And our guest this week, Mario Quagliariello, who is director of economic analysis at the EBA. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Persis Love. Until next week, goodbye. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.